overwhelmed by uh, that account. How about you guys? Um, what I'm going to be sharing with you guys today is the third draft of <laughs> this this sermon, and I'm still not feeling like it's ready. Um, so would you would you join me in in praying for this time? Not just because it's ceremonially what we do before sermon, but also because I I'm I still don't feel like it's ready. So will you pray with me, Lord? Man, we're man we we are just overwhelmed by by everything that you do, your, your relationship towards this earth, your relationship towards believers, your relationship towards unbelievers. God, you show your love for us in, in this way and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's so much more to you than you just protecting and providing for your own. The love that you show people who consistently and continually sin against you. It's not something that we can just expound and unpack entirely over the course of, you know, an hour and a half long service. It's not nothing that I can do. And I just, I just don't feel like the sermon is ready. I don't feel like it, it will live up to the power of your love. It, it will not. It's not even just a sentiment that I feel. It is a truth. This will not measure up. But if you will just squeeze this out and wring out the very most that you can out of it. I would appreciate it, Lord. Saturate this time with your Holy Spirit and move within your body to set our eyes upon your love. It's your kindness that draws us in. It's your love that has saved us. It's your love that has redeemed us. And it's in the context of your love that we will exist in fellowship with you for all of eternity. That is far beyond anything we can imagine. Thank you so much for Miss Chris and the work that she's doing, the work that you're doing through her and in front of her that she may see you and that we may see you as a secondary account. Please, please, please move in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. But earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I will show you a more excellent way. That is sort of like saying, previously on 24. That is where we left off last week. Um, Paul was telling the church in Corinth that supernatural gifts are given to the church. And Paul was also praising some of these gifts as the best gifts. And yet he tells them that there's a superior course of conduct beyond the church just wanting the best gifts that God has to offer. And we'll get more on that in a minute. But I, I want to first talk about what are spiritual gifts, just in case this is your first time joining us in this series. This is part four of a series that we've entitled The Spirit-Filled Church. So what are spiritual gifts? The Bible teaches that when a person accepts Jesus as their Lord, the Holy Spirit, that is the third member of the Trinity, um, distributes to people supernatural gifts and skill sets that are meant to edify the church and spread the gospel. Among these gifts are some commonplace skills, you know, things that we would only really consider talents. 
we wouldn't really recognize that these are supernatural, divinely empowered dynamics. Commonplace things like communications, teaching, or administration, what you might call just a sense of organization, or um, also helpfulness, just recognizing when somebody could need a hand and just being that person who's always available to provide. These are things that Paul says that they, these are beyond just good characteristics and qualities for people in the church to have. These are divinely sourced, powerful things that the Holy Spirit has distributed at his will to different members of the body. But there are also this second category of gifts that we will, for the rest of the sermon, and you'll excuse the implications of this, we're going to refer to them as more mystical gifts. There are these gifts that are sensational and miraculous, things like the gift of tongues, or the gift of healing, physical healings, the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy. These are, these are things that we believe that the Holy Spirit does give to people. It's not something that people can just generate on their own, but it's something that the Holy Spirit, at his will, will distribute to certain members of the body at certain times, or maybe for the entirety of their lives. We don't know, but these mystical things, in every single case, they exist at the will of the Holy Spirit. Now, because we're sinful and oftentimes self-serving, we have a tendency and a danger to turn the things that God has given to us by no efforts of our own, we can turn those things to promote ourselves. And we can turn those things to be opportunities where we can put ourselves in front of the rest of the body and separate ourselves and promote ourselves. But God has not given us these things that we can build up ourselves and glorify ourselves. He's done quite the opposite. It is out-facing. It was these holy, these holy Spirit-given gifts are meant to build up the church and to glorify God. And we need to be careful not to turn them in on ourselves. The Corinthian church was a church that had seen miraculous gifts firsthand. And they had wrongly begun to categorize and create this caste system. And at the very top of this caste system were the more miraculous and mystical gifts. And they kind of had the sentiment that the more spiritual you are, the closer fellowship you have with God, the more that God loves you, he's given you a more impressive sort of gift. And Paul takes chapters 12 through 14 to correct that sentiment. He wants to inform them that all members of the church have been distributed a different gift. And there are different gifts because there are different functions. Like a human being that has different body parts that do different things, so the church is the body of Christ and has different members to do different functions. It makes perfect sense. Informs them that these seemingly commonplace skills that we talked about earlier are not commonplace. Not at all. And they're not to be seen humbly and lowly as if they're not important because the church needs them. These are powerful gifts gifts of administration, gifts of organization. These are things that are divinely sourced and dynamic. In chapter 13, after telling them that there does exist better gifts, he says he's going to show them a more excellent way. He said you can pursue the best of the gifts, and that's wonderful, but there is a better pursuit. And that brings us to chapter 13. You can turn there if you'd like. Chapter 13 is oftentimes referred to as the love chapter. Or if you're from a church that is um, 
reading out of the King James Version or, or older versions that are closer to the Wycliffe translation may be referred to as the charity chapter. And people can quote verses from 1 Corinthians 13 and use the word charity instead of love because of that. Paul explains that love fuels the very efficacy of every spiritual gift that the church practices. That love is the substance and the essence of all that the church can and will do. We're going to read it. But I'm I'm actually going to start in the end of chapter 12. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 31, through the end of 13. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I will show you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, and does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide in faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. That is the only portion of this sermon that's going to be without any error. So hold on to that. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Paul begins this chapter, verses 1 through 3, by surveying a select few of spiritual gifts and contends that they are empty if they are not fueled by love as the undercurrent, that they're just empty and vacant. He starts with the gift of tongues purposefully. What is the gift of tongues? Well, chapter 14 is all about the gift of tongues, so we're going to spend the next three weeks unpacking that. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing that today. I'll just explain what you need to know for the sake of seeing where, what its place is in chapter 13. The gift of tongues is a divine phenomenon where a believer is given the miraculous ability to speak in a language other than their native language. The purpose of this gift is to transcend the limitations of one's own speech. The first example we see of this is in Acts chapter 2. The church is there, and they're waiting for a promise that Jesus said is going to come. Meanwhile, there's a lot of people, foreigners, sojourners, packing in the city of Jerusalem, celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. 
All of a the sudden, there's this crazy loud noise. All these crazy things start happening, and the members of the church start speaking in languages that they've never spoken before. And they're speaking in foreign languages, but more specifically than that, they're speaking in foreign local dialects of that foreign language. So that way, all of these sojourners who are here in Jerusalem are hearing the glorious works of God in their native tongue, and they're understanding what the church is speaking. It draws massive attention. People who don't understand what they're saying think that they're drunk, but people who are hearing their own language um, are comprehending at a very, very personal level. Peter stands up, he preaches a message, and boom, 3,000 souls are added to the church. It is a very fast-growing, powerful occurrence. But if you boil it down, the gift of tongues is all about communication. God breaks down the natural barriers of our language in order to enable his people to communicate clearly and unhindered by language or by speech or lack of eloquence, whatever. That's where the gift of tongues comes in. That's why it has value. And chapters 12 and 12 through 14 make it clear that the Corinthian church has an unhealthy and inappropriate esteem over the gift of tongues, thinking that is just the greatest gift ever, and there's this exhibition and display of people practicing the gift of tongues, but that's not what it was for. The gift of tongues is not to be standing up in front, speaking this weird language, and everybody's just like, oh, cool, that happened. It's, it's supposed to be for communication, and if somebody is speaking a language you don't understand, then that entirely defeats the purpose. So that's why Paul is beginning with the gift of tongues, because it is something so close and dear to the pride and esteem of the Corinthian church that he wants to address it first. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm just a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. Remember, the purpose of tongues is communication. It's clarity. But he's saying, you sterilize the gift of tongues if you have no love. You're not communicating anything. Even if you transcend the limitations of your own language by divine intervention and you're speaking to somebody in a language that they understand best, most clearest, and f most faithfully, if you don't love that person, all they're hearing is psh, psh, They're hearing nothing. It's noisy racket. It is sterilizing the miracle. It makes it of absolutely no worth. It's not communication at all. It's just racket. And we'll get into that a little bit more in chapter 14. And then Paul goes on and next contends the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy is something special to Paul. Where the Corinthian church highly esteemed the gift of tongues, Paul will make it clear that he personally esteems the gift of prophecy. He'll pit prophecy and tongues against each other and say that prophecy wins every time. And he wants the entire church to speak in prophecy. Um, notwithstanding... Even though Paul highly values prophecy, he also says that prophecy without love makes a Christian nothing, worthless, of absolutely no help. Prophecy is to speak the words of God, and sometimes it can, sometimes it can mean foretelling the future, sometimes it means just speaking into somebody's life, sometimes it just means accurately speaking the words that God has for his church at present without the dynamic of time involved. It sounds pretty valuable. However, Paul says the practice of that gift without love makes a Christian nothing. 
If you can do that, you're probably somebody that the church would esteem and value, but Paul says, no, nah. If you don't have love, it's absolutely nothing. Incidentally, while I was preparing this message, um, I actually always record myself preaching the same sermon before I, I say it. It sounds vain, but it's not vain. It, the reason I do that is so that way I can hear the parts that lose timing and I can cut them out. And I recorded myself doing the sermon and I was just like, it's just a lot of information. And I just started praying and this verse came out to me. Prophecy without love is nothing. And so I've spent the last several hours last night, this morning, to pray that God would move within me to be sharing this out of love for you guys, for your body, that God would lend to me the love that he has for you guys and that he would work it through me, that I would be able to preach this word and not be nothing to you guys, not to waste your time. And I just, again, pray that God's faithfulness will be shown through that. God, or excuse me, Paul tacks on to this portion where he's talking about prophecy, understanding and knowledge. Understanding and knowledge. This is something that the Corinthian church prides itself in. They strive towards knowledge. Maybe that's just an innate Greek sort of thing, but we know that the Corinthian church um, sort of holds spiritual maturity and uprightness with how knowledgeable someone is about the mysteries of God. We know that because we studied that in chapter 8. Paul's already been through this. Paul has already pitted knowledge against love. You guys remember that portion? Paul says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. He's saying all knowledge does is gas up somebody with air. They're inflated with no substance, but love, love will build up the church like brick and mortar to where it can stand, so it would have substance, so it would have depth to it in a way that knowledge won't. And then the next spiritual gift Paul contends is the gift of faith. Paul says that faith, to have faith in Jesus Christ is a miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He, he uses Jesus' words from Matthew 17 where, where Jesus says, faith just the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Faith is this potent substance that, that the church has. It's, it's, it's spiritual gunpowder is what it is. Even at the smallest amount, with the power of faith, the church can do amazing things. I don't know if you've ever been through a trying time, a time of discouragement, and uh, somebody comes alongside you, a brother or sister in the Lord, and just just has such a blessed assurance that God is going to bring you through it, that God always shows himself faithful in those times. I've, I've certainly had that in my, in my life. Family and friends that have just this undeniable gift of faith, of knowing God's character, of knowing, like, regardless of what's going on in my life, God remains faithful, and he's also powerful, and he's going to shine his faithfulness and his goodness through this in the end. When you have somebody with that special supernatural sort of faith, it can mean the difference between feeling abandoned by God and feeling encouraged and waiting for God. It's of a lot of value for those of you out there who have that sort of faith where you can come along somebody, alongside somebody and encourage them in assurance of who God is. That is extremely valuable to the church and we need you. And yet, Paul again says, without the undercurrent of love, it makes somebody with that kind of faith 
nothing, of no value, worthless to the church. So thus far, thus far, Paul has been referring to tongues, prophecy, knowledge, great faith. These are things that the church holds as, um, as assets, commodities. These are kind of status-building places. You can call somebody a tower of faith or, or a, a wise prophet, and they build this sort of status among the church. And you look at people, and you're like, oh, this is somebody I can turn to in the body. But then in verse 3, Paul kind of jumps the spectrum. He's leaving the area of status, and he goes into the section where he starts talking about piety. Let me read it for you. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it, and this is really interesting, profits me nothing. Charity and martyrdom. That's what he's talking about here. He says, if I max out on charity, if I give everything that I own and sell it, and use the proceeds to feed the poor. It mirrors the story of the rich young ruler. Um, sorry, let me turn my notes page here. What's interesting, let me back up for a second. What's interesting about charity and martyrdom, these are two things that Jesus has directly said yield spiritual profit. That's why it's interesting that Paul says it would profit me nothing. Because in the book of Luke, there's an account of both of these things where Jesus says that there is a transaction. You do these things and there will be an eternal heavenly reward for you. In Luke 18, a rich young guy kind of has everything. I picture him super handsome just because I think that that kind of goes together. Rich young ruler asks Jesus, what he, must to, what he must do to inherit eternal life. He's talking about receiving. He's talking about profit. This is a guy who understands business. He's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, so he's gotten this relatively quickly. And so he comes to Jesus and says, I've kind of conquered this world. What can I do to now inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, easy. Just do everything that it says in the law and the prophets. Guy says, yeah, I've done all of that since my youth. It's like, I've done everything. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. That's a transactional discussion. That's do these good works, and this is the reward that you will receive in heaven. But Paul qualifies that within this bracket, saying, no, let me, make it, let me make it clear to you. You could possibly give everything that you have and sell to the poor, but that will not yield you heavenly reward in and of itself. It has to have this love undercurrent. Yes, Jesus says that there is potential profit for this sort of piety, but not in and of itself. It is vacant unless it is filled and fueled by love. The next point of piety, martyrdom, persecution, though I give my body to be burned. Just this, Paul is saying this just a few years before Nero's um, legislative persecution of the church, where Christians will literally be set on fire to light the gardens of the emperor. Having your body burned is going to become a reality for this people. This is a grotesque 
vivid and grave image that is not just metaphorical in nature. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus refers to one giving up his life to follow Jesus. And he's talking a lot of, there, there are these motifs about death and execution, and it, it rings true about persecution and martyrdom. This is Luke 9, starting in 23. Then he said to them all, said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, that's an instrument of ex execution, take up of his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? Um, let, let's get another one. Outside of the, go the Gospel of Luke, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, that's Jesus. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are transactional discussions. These are good works and the eternal treasure you will yield in return. If you forsake all in the sentimental sense for Jesus and follow him, you will have a great reward in heaven. But even beyond that, if an occasion arises where you are to give up your physical, literal life for Jesus, for Jesus, there is a heavenly reward for that. However, Paul qualifies and says, if you do that without love, it profits you nothing. These transactional discussions that Jesus has given notwithstanding, Paul is saying that the very essence of these good deeds for Jesus Christ are vacant, empty, profitless if you do not have love. So it, Paul has now said, tongues are nothing without love, faith is nothing without love, knowledge is nothing without love, prophecy is nothing without love, piety and charity is nothing without love, martyrdom is nothing without love. So it begs the question, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. I couldn't resist. It's less cool that it was written in my notes. Um, Paul will spend verses four through seven describing love in many different words and phrases. Um, he's doing this to make a point. Love is very complicated. It is robust. It's multifaceted. And he's, he will use all sorts of different scenarios, but he is not saying that love can be manipulated and applied in certain areas and will behave in this sort of way. What he means to say is that love is all of these things simultaneously and can only be adequately described by taking all of this time and considering all these things. Love is not a thneed. Do you know what I mean by that? Like in the Lorax? No? It's a shirt, it's a glove, it's a hat, but it has other uses yet far beyond that? No? You guys, you just don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we'll skip that. <laughs> Understand this. Agape, agape love. Agape is the Greek word that Paul uses here. It's, it's a purposeful word meaning love. It's, it's supposed to mean love in its purest sense. Love is not just a regard for something. It's not just the way you behold something and how you feel towards it. It's not just endearing 
emotional responses to something you see. In fact, love in this sense is not responsive. That can be a measure of it, but just to think of love as the way you respond and behold and regard something is, it makes love stagnant. It holds it still. Instead, love, as Paul is describing here, is active. And love is actually initiative. Um, really, the only equivalent noun I could think of that kind of bears the same function of love as being described here is the word drive. Not the verb to drive, but the noun that is drive, motivation, self-application, striving through obstacles. Like an athlete, a world-class athlete in the event of performance and training has drive, right? Like, well, drive is hard to define too. The the reason what makes it difficult is because it's sort of this ethereal, ineffable noun that doesn't really exist exist in a tangible sort of way. But if you tried to describe it, it could probably follow the same sort of pattern that Paul is doing here for love, like saying, if I was capable of benching 400 pounds and I could run for miles but I didn't have drive, I could never apply myself and become a world-class athlete. Um, Drive isn't convenient, it isn't self-assuring, it isn't compromising, and it doesn't stop. Something kind of along those lines. Don't, Don't be distracted. We're not talking about drive and motivation today. But think about that as kind of an equivalent in the parallel of the way it functions in the same sort of way that Christians should run on love the way an athlete runs on drive. Love is not static is kind of the point I'm trying to make. So Paul starts to describe the tendencies of love. You can understand that the nature of love is that it's moving, but you need to know its tendencies. Kind of like you can understand the nature of a lion is that it's a living creature, but its tendencies are ferocity and that it's carnivorous. You need to to know a little bit more about something before you can adequately be familiar with it. So Paul says that love is long-suffering, kind, and unenvious. In short, though shortening this description defeats the purpose, love is selfless. Love is selfless because it can long endure opposition, it can be considerate of others, and it cannot covet something that it does not have. So it is selfless. It's not regarding itself as the ultimate goal. Because love is not responsive or receptive, it is giving and it is initiative. Paul says love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. In short, though shortening the description defeats the purpose, love is humble. Love is humble because it isn't showy or aggrandized. It it isn't irreverent or demanding or aggressive or pushy. It's quiet and gentle. Love is humble. The next thing that Paul says is that love thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. In short, Though shortening this description defeats the purpose, love is morally virtuous. It is good. Maliciousness, wickedness, cutting of corners, bending the rules, it does not exist in the confines of true agape love that Paul is describing. And Paul says love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is unyielding. 
It's innocently idealistic, and it's positive and tireless. In short, though shortening the description defeats the purpose, love is unjaded or, or pure or innocent. Paul did not just get carried away here and just start rambling on. He did this intentionally to explain how complicated love is. It can only be exhaustively described and defined over the course of many, 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 many words. We've shortened it to be that, for brevity's sake, love is selfless, humble, morally virtuous, and unjaded. But leaving any participle or any word out of that description, it, it makes it a poorer definition. The better definition and description of love is verbatim what it says in Scripture for all of its points. That's the only full rounded definition of love. One more thing on, on describing love before we move on in the passage. Love is unique to itself in that it is hyperactive and yet it's gently benevolent. Love is hyperactive, it is always going, it's pushing, 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 and yet it's gently benevolent hyperactive yet soft. Verse 8, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Paul has made outrageous claims that love is the best thing for which a Christian can strive, and he encourages, like, yes, try to get really good gifts, but make your first priority to grow and to really develop your ability to love. Why is that? It's not just because of a preference that Paul has. He says that there's a practical reality as to why love is the most important. And he says, love never fails, which sounds sort of like a lesson you'd learn from Care Bears. But he, he doesn't mean that love will, will never lose or never, love will never back down, love will never be defeated. What he means is love will never fail in, in the sense of supply or relevance. He means that love will never be antiquated. In the expanse of eternal history, love will always have a prominent place and accent in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. When all things pass away, love will still have a prominent place. On the other hand, conversely, a lot of spiritual gifts have only temporal relevance. The only reason that prophecy and tongues and miracles of healing and other kinds of miracles, the only reason that they exist because, is because the church exists in this context of disorder, in this contents of ignorance and degradation. We're falling apart, so we need somebody who can miraculously heal. And in verse 9, Paul says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Prophecy is valuable because we have a finite scope of the things that we know a very small perspective of this earth. We only have our first-hand experiences and second-hand experiences. And so we don't know what's going on on the outside of our perspective. But by prophecy, there's divine intervention where God comes in and he just opens up unhindered perspective on a heavenly level. And when somebody has been given that gift from God, it is unbelievably valuable for the church. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Meaning, when 
the whole world has is seen the consummation of Jesus' reign. When Jesus has returned and we're existing all in perfection and all is revealed, you don't need that guy to come open up your perspective anymore because all will be made known. Prophecy is kind of like your learner's permit. Right? When you were 15 and a half, it meant it meant everything to you. You took it wherever you went, it was a big part of your life, but when you got your license, then it kind of been, was made obsolete and antiquated. It doesn't mean it never mattered, it just means that a culmination, a realization, a, a, a greater arrival has come. And that's kind of a helpful way for us to see these spiritual gifts like prophecy. Verse 11, Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul's using a metaphor of growing up. He said, there's a time in your life when you speak childishly because you are a child. It is a temporary season of your life. You will grow up and grow out of it. Your perspective will grow, your speech will grow, your understanding will grow. You will become an adult. And he says, spiritually, the fact that we have these gifts of speech, they really are just childish speech. Tongues is just an expression of us being, as a church, children in our development. This is not the end. We are, just as a child is meant to grow up, the church is meant to come out of this season where we need these tools. These tools are valuable, but they are temporal. The nature of our interaction with the heavenlies right now is blurred at best. And, and God has gifted people like you to have this, this, this great gift to be able to share with us greater glimpses into the heavenly kingdom. And that's wonderful. We value that. We need you. But greater than we need you, we need Jesus. And when Jesus arrives... There would be a greater outpouring, and, and these tools, as important as they are today, they're going to become antiquated and obsolete, like a learner's permit, because a greater realization will come. That's the real glory. Being here and exercising gifts in front of each other, showing that you can be a wise prophet, or showing that you have the gift of tongues, or showing that... God has endowed you with the gift of miracles and healing. Like, that's, that's great. That's cool. That edifies the body, but that's not the true glory. The true glory is knowing Jesus and seeing him face to face, as we will all know in eternity, as our brother Alan is experiencing now. But for now, meanwhile, while we're here, we abide in three things, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We're not abiding in our skill sets. It's not the fact that we are so good at teaching or so good at leading worship or so good at prophesying over each other that's making this life bearable. That's at least not the way it should be. That's putting the focus on us. What's making this temporal time bearable is that we're abiding in faith, in faith that Jesus has overcome the world, in hope hope that Jesus is returning, and love, and the greatest of these is love. We need to learn how to exercise love now because it's not going to fail. It's not going to run out. It's always going to be relevant, and it is something heavenly that we can experience now. When we, when we speak in tongues, even if maybe it exists to speak in heavenly tongues, heavenly languages, it's 
It doesn't bear the same meaning that it will in eternity, but when we love now, it bears the exact same meaning and implications as it will in eternity. And that's why we need to pursue love above all things. Paul's exhortation for the Corinthian church, for them to stop coming forward, stop promoting themselves, and stop making themselves the focus, it is the same exhortation that we need today as the church. We need to not be exercising and manifesting our own talents to turn our eye, turn people's eyes and efforts upon us and build ourselves up. We need to be emptying ourselves. Having this initiative, fiery sort of drive within us that is love as an undercurrent of over all the things we do so that we, we are reaching outward, not pulling inward. Um, I want to read I'll just read it out of my notes. A story. This is in John chapter 13. You can turn there if you'd like. We're going to skip several verses just for the sake of time. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended... The devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Skipping down to 12. So when he had washed their feet, Taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another, one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, this is verse 31, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A few important points of the story. One, this was just hours before Jesus was to be arrested. This happened around six or seven. We think that Jesus was arrested about one in the morning. This is just hours before the timeline that is the passion events where Jesus is arrested, falsely tried, um, condemned to death, led up the hill, and crucified. These are within the last hours of his earthly ministry life. This is something that he found so important that he spared the last moments before the cross to do this. Now remember, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus at the point of his baptism like a dove and stayed upon him. Jesus could exercise all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He could prophesy. He could perform miracles. He could raise the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick. He didn't choose to do those things the last night. 
It would actually kind of make sense if Jesus chose to rise somebody from resurrect somebody from the dead right before he was to go to the cross. It would make a lot of sense for him to show his power, but he didn't do that in his last moments. He showed his humility. If you've never accurately pictured this scene, let, let, me, try, let me try to explain it. Jesus takes off of his clothes and he grabs a towel and he wraps it around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet with the towel that he's wearing. He is literally wearing and putting on their filth upon his body. That's what he chose to do with the last few hours of his life. Point number two, this takes place after Judas had already decided to betray Jesus. So Jesus is doing this for these 12 men, including one who had malicious intents toward him. And that did not change things. Point number three, Jesus knew that all of heaven and earth had been given to him. Jesus knew that this was beneath him. He knew that this act was debasing, disgusting, and gross. However, he loved these men, and he wanted to show them that when there is a need for his church, he will stop at nothing to serve that need, even though it is far beneath his own worthiness. And point number four, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Why did Jesus do this? It was out of his love. This was a picture of his love, and he's, he made it clear that this is a prominent lesson. He says, I've done this for you. I'm your master. It's true I'm your master, and you are not greater than me because I'm your master. So this is what I'm asking you guys to do for each other. Debase yourself. Defile yourself for the needs of others. This washing of feet, it is a picture of the cross. It is the same exact kind of act, but in a smaller scale. Just as Jesus went to the cross and was debased and shamed in public, so he was in this smaller capacity. Just as here when he's washing the feet, he was wearing the filth of his disciples, so literally when he hung on the cross, he bore the guilt and shame of all of the church for all of history. Jesus says, I expect you guys to do this sort of thing for each other, to bear each other's shame, to serve one another out of love, to serve a need that is there regardless of whether it's beneath you, regardless of whether people within this room has, have malicious intents towards you guys, pursue love. And he says, blessed are you if you do it because now you know it. Jesus has put this in his word and he's now holding us accountable because it is in here. If you're not a Christian today, know this. Christianity is not built on morality. It's not built on universal, unconditional acceptance. It is built upon this great king. This great king who has everything in his power, within his power, but while we were yet sinners, he debased himself, got low, took off of his, his garments as a king, and wore and defiled himself by our filth. That is why we are Christians, because we follow and love that king. And we believe that he has saved us. But for the rest of us, church, let's not get distracted, huh? Our standard in life is Jesus' life. Any ways that our life does not mirror Jesus' life needs to be corrected because our lives are supposed to be fueled by the Holy Spirit in the same way that Jesus' life was fueled by the Holy Spirit in a full capacity. Our life is to be pressing on towards love. And after the cross, Jesus told his disciples that the greatest love is for someone to lay down his life for his friends. Our ministry towards one another is a train headed to that destination. 
That is the greatest expression of love. To sentimentally lay aside every single right for the love of somebody else when there's a need, when you feel called to it. And if an occasion should arise to lay down your physical life out of love for somebody else. It is a grave calling, but the Holy Spirit that gave Jesus the the ability and the anointing to do that also dwells within you, Christians. And this gift of love of the Holy Spirit is the best way. It is the best course of conduct that we can have to operate well. Remember, this series is called The Spirit-Filled Church. The whole point of the series is to have a scripturally accurate understanding of what the practice of a church should be and how a church should look if it is filled with the Holy Spirit. If we want to be that, we need to follow Jesus. And Jesus is our great king that got low, laid off his garments, regardless of his rights and his worthiness, regardless of what the people in the room thought of him and how they felt toward him and what they planned to do to him. He set aside his garments and put on their filth to defile himself out of love for them. This is the greatest thing that we could pursue. And you know what? When this life passes away, as we continue into eternity, this thick, fiery, stop-at-nothing love will always have a prominent place of emphasis in eternity. Ultimately, in Jesus' example, and we can have that now and we need to strive towards that now. It's better than being a wise prophet. It's better than being able to speak in tongues. It's better than be able to lay your hands on a sick man and make him healed. It is better to know how to love viscerally, ferociously, unyieldingly, like the drive of a world-class athlete, so is the love of an anointed, spirit-filled Christian. So let's get out of the front place and start reaching lovingly towards people because that is what our God, our Savior, our teacher and master has done for us. There is eternity coming, but for now, let's abide in faith and hope and love. Let's pray, guys. Jesus, you stop at nothing for those you love. You stop at nothing for those you love, even though those people that you love don't love you. While we were yet sinners, you gave your life to die. Lord, this, this is a truth that is beyond us. It is a love that we cannot generate within ourselves. It's not something we naturally feel for people. It's not something we would naturally desire. But I just pray that the priority and the focus of our lives would be to pursue love above all things. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would gift us with that endowment to love viscerally, to love humbly and selflessly and unjadedly. In Jesus' name, amen.